Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sports Virus Podcast. I'm Joe Castellano, and we're off to a great start with this new podcast. We've had Greg Gumbel from CBS Sports, Ron Wotus, the former Giants third base coach, and Greg Papa, the voice of the San Francisco 49ers. Now we will continue our NFL talk with another colleague of mine at CBS that I work with every week now, Mark Grant, someone I've known since the late 80s when he worked at ESPN. He has 41 years of experience and has won five Emmy Awards, and he is going to be the lead director for the NCAA Final Four College Basketball, uh, not this season, but the following season, 2022-23. So it's been a great career for Mark Grant, and we had a chance to chat on Wednesday. Well, Mark, thanks a lot for joining me here on this podcast. You know, we work together every week, but I don't really see you that much. You're in the truck, and I'm upstairs. And uh, being the director of an NFL game every week, I'm just curious right off the bat, uh, the stress level that that brings because, you know, you're in, tr- in charge of an entire technical crew. So, you know, each week uh, you have a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it's a little bit of a challenge, but, you know, I think you grow into the role. Uh, you know, it wasn't like I uh, graduated from college and started directing the NFL. I, I worked, I directed city council meetings and school board meetings and high school football and worked my way up to regional cable. And then I, I worked at ESPN and now, you know, I'm at the at the level I'm at uh, doing the NFL every week for CBS. It's it's a uh, you know it's a challenge every week, but you know I'm also very blessed to to be one of only 16 people in the country who gets to direct the NFL every single week, and so I never lose sight of that. And um, nor do I lose sight of the fact that there's a lot of people who want to, and there's a lot of people who can. And so you know, with all the pressure that's on us and the challenges, um, I know I've got to perform at a high level every single week to keep my job, and so that's motivating in itself, right there, to to, uh, to do it, try to do it, and perform well every single week, and make my bosses happy. You know, you mentioned some of those other events that you did, and those don't include having the same camera people every week. How much of an advantage is that, and how long does it take to have that comfort level with the camera guys so they know exactly what you want every week? Yeah, you know, on our show we have uh, we have nine cam- nine man cameras every single week, and three of those man cameras are people who work with me every single week. And so when you look at it, there's two thirds of the camera crew every single week are people I don't work on a regular basis. Now they may do the NFL every single week, but they may be working with a different you know they they you know whatever director comes to their town, they work with that director. And since we all do it differently. Um, they have to really kind of understand how I do it. And so I spend a lot of time leading up to the game, uh, the week leading up to the game, sending emails to the camera people, sending video to them on every single camera position so that they know what I'm expecting from their camera in every given situation. When someone scores a touchdown, when there's a punt, when there's a kickoff, um, every single position uh, they know what they're supposed to do. And so hopefully by Given that to them ahead of time, it, they, they, they approach the game when the game begins. They already have an idea of what Mark Grant likes as a director, and there's no uh, learning curve that uh, has to take place. I, mean, I remember when I was a much younger director, I would say, oh, you know, hopefully by the second quarter we'll, uh, we'll all be in sync. Well, we don't have that time anymore. The, the, the demands of uh, delivering 
great coverage start at the kickoff, and so we have to be ready from the kickoff. And so that's why I spend a lot of time prepping camera people uh, during the week. And I'm not sure if every director does it, but it, is, it has worked for me, and I will continue to do that for the rest of my career. Well, that's great that you do that because I, w- I would think it would be kind of hard sometimes when you have a new person in there, you know, a new voice. I mean, they don't even know when to – talk to you because you know you have a certain way of going about it and I always look at it as being very challenging to, to have all these people in your ear I mean you're talking to them but there are people that can get in your ear and it can get a little confusing sometimes yeah but I think over time you learn to kind of filter out the noise and uh, you know I have a lot of different people in my ear that talk to me and, the, the, and that I'm listening to including the announcers right that's the first and foremost that's who I need to hear more than anybody else but there are times when a camera person needs to say something to me or ask me a question or whatever, and uh, I need to be able to hear them as well. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of noise in my ear, but I think over time you just kind of get used to it and you just really, really filter out what you need to hear at any point. And when someone talks to you and they ask a question, you listen to that and, and you move on. Um, I know a lot of people, when they, when, they, uh, when they listen to me direct the game, when, they, when sometimes people are on the, you know, we have guests in the truck and they listen in, and they wonder how can I listen to all those different voices in my headset at the same time. And I guess, you know, it's really true what they say. Sometimes you have voices in your head, and I have voices <laughs> in my head, and I just try to, uh, I just try to listen to the one that's most important at that moment, and uh, and uh, filter out the other ones. And so that's how it works for me. How much different is it when you change announcers from one season to another? Because you know you had Rich Gannon as the analyst last season with Greg Gumbel. Now you have Greg again, but he's with Adam Archuleta. So were there adjustments that you had to make? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge because, um, because everybody does it differently. Just like directors do it differently, so do announcers. And some announcers are a little bit more, uh, um, uh, they, they talk to us more. They'll talk to me off, off you know, where you can't, uh, the viewer can't hear them. They'll say to me, hey, give me a shot of so-and-so, give me a shot of so-and-so. And so the challenge is to try to make sure that um, you're in sync with your announcers, and it takes a while to get in, in sync. And it's not that um, they're not good or I'm not good or something like that, but it's almost like, it's almost like having a dance partner. And when you, um, when you have a dance partner and you've been with that dance partner for a long time, like I was with Rich, you develop a, a, uh, a, a relationship. And when you have a new dance partner, it takes a while to get used to it. And that doesn't mean that the, that, that, that partner can't dance or I can't dance or anything like that, but you've got to kind of get into the flow and it took a while for Adam and I to get into that flow, but we're in that flow now, and we're really, really, um, we're really great. I will say this: that um, you know, uh, Adam is Adam is a great guy. He's different than a lot of announcers I work with, and I really enjoy working with him because of you know it's just a different style. He's he's he's. And I don't want to. You know, I'll say this, but I don't mean it in, a, in an insulting way. He's not as polished as a lot of analysts that I've worked with in the past. But I think that sometimes his um, his uh, aloofness. And his, you know, his way of doing things is just kind of refreshing that he's not, uh, you know, like uh, from a cookie cutter of announcers that I've worked with. And I've worked with many, many announcers in my career. And Adam is certainly the one that, that um, I, I really enjoy working with him because he just brings a different, a different approach to the game. And even when you talk to him off camera, you could tell that he's just a little bit different. Uh, he's, he's just just a little bit different. And um, and I've, I've, I've learned to, you know, over this season, learn how, you know, what is his quirkiness, is, I guess is a good way to put it. Uh, I've learned his quirkiness. But we have a lot of fun. We laugh together. We have, a, you know, he says things that are funny, and I react to them. 
and it's it's uh it's really good TV, I think. Yeah, isn't that funny? I mean, you've been doing this a long time, and yet you can still learn something, especially when, like you said, it's a new person. It's not a cookie cur- a cookie cutter uh, analyst, so I, I, you still have a you know sort of a learning process, uh, and you get to grow. Yeah, you know, Joe, I don't think that you can ever stop learning in this business. You know, I don't care who you are or where you're at in your in your career in any in any business, right? I think Tom Brady is still learning about football to some extent, mm-hmm. and and I think that at uh, you know after uh, being in this business for forty forty one years, um, you know, you would think you've climbed to the mountaintop and you can't go any higher or anything like that. But you know, I've never had a perfect show. I've never directed the perfect game. And so there's always room to improve and and um, and grow. And one of those things is you know getting in sync with your announcers, like we have to do. That's one small part of it. But uh, yeah, I'm always willing to learn. And I rem- uh, a long time ago I used to cover LSU football, and I would I was a camera person, and I'd be in the locker room before the game, and then when the players run out on the field, they they touch this sign right above the door going out to the field, and that sign said, "When you're through improving, you're through." <laughs> and uh, and so I always live by that and think about that and really really try to um, uh, 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 make sure that I'm 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 honoring that and and really trying to be the best I can be and not just get so happy that okay I've made it here I'm I'm doing the NFL for CBS I'm going to do it forever because I think that when you let your guard down and get lazy that's when bad things happen and and you start making mistakes and CBS notices that and eventually they say you know what. We're going to move in a different direction. We don't need you anymore. And I never want them to say that to me. You know, every week, I think, on every NFL crew, the first thing that you look at is, okay, what's this matchup? How great is this? You know, or, or is it not the greatest matchup that, that you've ever seen? And then there's the game. It, you know, is it a close game or is it a blowout? And mm-hmm. when it's a blowout, those are the tough ones to do. I mean, how, how challenging do you find that, whether it, it's maybe not the matchup that you're that excited about or, you know, it's the game, you know, it's 30 to nothing in the third quarter and you still have to try to be creative? Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, nobody likes a blowout, that's for sure. Um, but I will say this, that it is, it, is, it is a lot better when you have a blowout when the home team is winning because at least you have the crowd who's really into the game and all that. But mm-hmm. when you're doing a game and the home team's losing 30 to nothing, <laughs> it is awful. There is, there is nothing to shoot. I mean, you, you can show fans leaving the game and, you know, uh, uh, you know, they're upset and they're screaming and yelling and they're cursing and stuff like that. But it is no fun uh, doing a game when the home team's getting blown out. Uh, when, the, when, the, uh, when the home team's winning and they're blowing out another team, it's better because you've got the crowd and the color and everybody's ha- you know, most of the people are happy and all that. We're still not, you know, we're still not content, but, but I always tell my crew this, that I don't want the quality of our broadcast to be determined by the quality of play on the field. I have done many, many, many games in my career, hundreds of games in my career that came down to the last minute of the game, and somebody wins on the last play of the game on a game-winning kick or a Hail Mary or something like that, but we had an awful production. And there have been many times when I've had the blowout that you talk about, whether it's the home team getting blown out or the, or the visiting team blowing the home team out, and we've had excellent productions. And so I like for our, our telecast to stand on its own two feet. And, and, yeah, we all want a game that comes down to the last play of the game. That's great. But if it doesn't, I want to be able to walk away and say we did our job, even though the teams on the field didn't do their job. What kind of thrill do you get out of doing the big game uh, in the past and – Going forward, because you're going to be the lead director for the top NCAA games, directing the 
Final Four. That's starting in 2022-23 season. Bob Fishman, the legend, is uh, going to be directing his last one this season. So big shoes to fill. Uh, and I'm just curious about you know the pressure, the challenges, but also the thrill of being in that position. Yeah, you know, I think that one thing that's great is when you cover an event, the final game, the final match, the final whatever of that event, whether that's the Super Bowl or whether that's the World Series or, you know, whatever it is, and certainly to be able to cover the, the, the championship game of the NCAA basketball tournament is something that I'm really, really looking forward to. Um, you know, Bob has been doing it for 40, will have done it for 40 years when he re- retires, and I always tell people, that, okay, CBS gave me this gig, and so now if I do it for 40 years like Bob Fishman, I'll be directing my last Final Four when I'm, um, when I'm 103 years old. <laughs> I'm, I'll be 63 when I direct my first one. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a lot. But at the same time, I think I earned it. You know, CBS had about eight different directors. They could have, they could have asked anybody, and they chose me. And so they must have thought enough of my work to, 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 to give me that opportunity. I, um, I'm very honored by it and, and excited by it. You know, it's, it's, it's a little hard right now, Joe, I'll be honest with you, because I have to sit on it for a year and a half, right? I'm not going to direct the Final Four until 2023. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I feel like I've earned it, and I feel like I, I'm ready for the challenge. Um, certainly I'll be nervous when I sit in that chair and direct my first Final Four, but, but I also have to remind myself that, you know, I earned this spot. They didn't just give it to me. I didn't, you know, they didn't just hand it to me because I was, um, I, I won the lottery or something like that. I, I, I earned this spot, and so I have to continue to do whatever I did to earn that position and justify the decision that CBS made. And so, yeah, you know, it, it, and, and like you said, it, it's fun doing the big show. It's fun doing events that you know millions and millions of people are watching. Um, and certainly the final four has that, you know, is, is, is like that. And I'm, and I'm excited about it and ready to do it. I wish it, you know, not to push Bob out the door or anything, but I wish I was doing it, um, for the next final four in 2022. Well, I'm excited about it too. And I know you're going to do a fantastic job on that. And, uh, you know, we talked about camera people and we talked about the analyst. We haven't yet talked about producers because, you know, that's the person sitting next to you that uh, you are closely working with. Uh, every week right now it's Jonathan Siegel on the NFL and for the NCAA that would be Mark Wolf and all these producers are different they they have their quirks about them so how do you make that adjustment yeah you have to really really you know sometimes you have to draw the line in the sand and don't let them cross the line and you try not to cross <laughs> that line either um and, and they all do it differently you know and 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 uh, I just want every producer to let me do my job okay I don't try to produce and I don't want them to try to direct now there is a there is a relationship we have between us. You know we're the we're the we're the the, the front of the of the train basically. We 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 drive the engine and we have to kind of get along. Sometimes the producers want to go, want to go to a replay when I think it's not a good time. You know they're about to shoot the free throw, they're about to snap the football, whatever. And um, at least I think they're going to do that. And all of a sudden there's a delay, and we, you know the producer producer gets mad because I could have probably gone to the replay. But you never want to miss live action. Uh, for the sake of the replays that the producer calls, and it's my job as a director to kind of manage that. Um, yeah, I work with Jonathan. We've worked together for many, many years, and you know he's a great producer. He's a brilliant young mind. It's a real challenge sometimes. I think when you're at different places in your career, Jonathan is certainly a a rising star at CBS, and I don't want to say I'm a falling star. I don't really mean it that way, but you know I've been in the business a lot longer than Jonathan. Like I said, it was this is my uh, 41st year in in television, and so sometimes. 
you know, we're we're at different places, and 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 it's it's a little bit of a challenge. But you know, as long as uh, producers respect my position and I show them the respect that they deserve, we get along fine. And um, uh, you know, we certainly have conflicts. And every game that I've ever directed, I've had a conflict with the producer, a disagreement. But it's all because we care about the the final product. And sometimes we disagree on what is the most important thing. It's kind of like when a uh, you know I tell people all the time that the uh, the producer is like the head coach and the director is like the quarterback he has the quarter, the director has to execute the plays that the that the uh, that the coach calls and sometimes you know the 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 uh, the quarterback gets out on the field and wants to change the play and i am the same way as a director sometimes i want to change the play as well because i see something happen that maybe we shouldn't go to that replay right now maybe we shouldn't put in that graphic right now maybe maybe it's you know i, I see a great camera shot i see a coach yelling at a player i see a mom praying that her son hits the free throw blah 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 and so um you know i want producers to give me the 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 discretion to sometimes call them off when i see something that they may not see well, it's interesting because if you go back uh, to when I first started in the business in the 80s, I mean, the, the director had all the power uh, just before I got into the business. And, you know, producers started to get more and more as you went along. I mean, could, the first director I ever worked with, Mark, was Chet Forty. I mean, he did everything. He directed yeah. and he pretty much produced. And then they brought in Kenny Wolf and, you know, he started to be more of the producer. So you've seen the changes. And, and where do we stand now? Is it supposed to be really kind of 50-50? Well, I don't think it's 50-50. I, I really don't, but this is what I will say. The producer spends a lot more time before the game getting ready for the game. He's the one who has to come up with the theme, the, what, what we're gonna, how we're going to weave the telecast together with all the stories we have to tell and uh, with all the interviews we've done with the coaches and the players. He's the one who decides that kind of stuff, in addition to deciding the replays. Um, my job really begins when we, when we get in the truck and I sit down and, 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 and direct the game. I would say 90% of my job happens when the game begins. I would say for a producer, I'd say about 90% of his work happens before the game begins. And so that's a big difference yeah. and one that many, many people don't see. And you're right. In the olden days, it was, it was just, you know, whoever, you know, whoever was directing in the truck was really kind of calling all the replays. He was in charge and all that. But over time, you know, producers become the storyteller, right? They become the one who tells us, wants to tell the story, and they work very closely with the announcers. And and um, uh, and so they they have a they have a plan going in. The, they meaning producers have a plan going in of of, of what they want to do. And then they, when the play when the game begins, then they want to uh, you know they they are in charge of the replays and all that. And they're talking about the they want to talk about the stories and remind announcers keep them on track of the stories that 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 we want to tell. Remind them of what a player said in an interview. Blah 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 blah. And then my job is to just put stuff on the air. That's what they that's what they want. And so. That's where it's shifted now, and, and uh, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I don't want to decide what replay we go to. I want somebody else to tell me what replay do we go to, and then I just put it on the air. I'm okay doing that. Um, but I also know that um, as, a, as, a, as a director, I see all the cameras that the producer doesn't see, and sometimes there's some very, very, very great shots that I really want to put on the air right now that if I miss it, if I miss it, then I'll never get it back. I'll never get a shot of that, you know, that shot. Coach, if he throws his headset down, you know, he's mad at, at, the, at the defense for <laughs> giving up the roughing the passer on the big third down. You know, I want to show that right now live while it's happening. Um, the producer may want to go to replay, and then we, you yeah, know, we can certainly go to that shot of the coach throwing the headset down afterwards, but it's always great to see that shot live the moment it happens. And, and so um, 
that's what I try to do is, 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 is tell producers to let me, just trust me just like I trust them. And as long as you have mutual trust, then you can work together. Yeah, and there's nothing like the drama of the live shot. Uh, I mentioned a little bit about my experience at ABC. Eventually, I ended up at ESPN and worked with you on college football. That was the first time I met you. And you were talking about how you got started and you know doing high school sports. What was the ESPN experience like for you? And is that where you decided that you wanted to be a director? Yeah, you know, I, I, I was fortunate that when I, um, when I went to LSU, uh, different networks would come to town to cover LSU sports. Eventually, um, ESPN came to town to cover, uh, to cover you know, LSU sports. I was able to get on with them, and I was a gopher and a runner, and I was you know, emptying trash cans and pulling <laughs> camera cable and, and all the things that you do when you want to get into the business. Um, I, I, I really... You know, from the time I found out what ESPN was, and just to back, go back for a second, in, in 1978, I went to a, in 1978, I went to an LSU basketball game. It was covered by these, this, these, this TV crew I'd never heard of before. And I went up to one of the guys, and I said, what the heck is Eastman? And uh, <laughs> they, said, they said, no, we're, you're an idiot, and we're ESPN, and we're a brand-new 24-hour sports network. And you think about how long ago that was. And I went back to my seat, and I told my girlfriend, I said, someday I'm going to work for them. And so <laughs> once I had a, when I was in college and I, and, and I found out about ESPN, I had a purpose in, in school. And so every time they would come to town and other people, I would work for them. And I, I graduated, and uh, you know, I worked in local cable covering the things like high school football and city council meetings and all that. Eventually became a camera person for ESPN. And I was able to, Joe, I was able to, you know, I was still working for the local cable company, but I could see how real-time, real big-time TV was, was produced and what, what it took to make, you know, uh, sports look good. I was able to take that back to the local cable company, and now I'm producing or directing high school football games, and they have a little bit more oomph to them because I knew what ESPN did or knew what ABC did. And so um, won some awards, some, some awards for uh, doing that, and ESPN recognized the fact that I was, not, I was more than just a camera, camera person at that point. I could do some different things, and so they gave me a chance to be an associate director, and eventually that led to being a director. And um, I loved my time at ESPN; it was it was great, it was great. But when it was time to go for me, it was it was, you know, when 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 someone says to you, "We want you to work," I, I was I was just a bit player at ESPN. I wasn't a top director; I was just one of their directors, and they have many directors. But when CBS comes calling and they say, "You know, we we're doing the NFL now; we just got the NFL back, and we need people to direct the NFL." It was a no-brainer for me to move on to CBS uh, uh, from ESPN, and I'm very, you know, I, I wouldn't be where I'm at today without my experiences, not only from working with ESPN, but also when I worked city council and school board meetings and high school football, I would not be where I'm at today had I not got that start. And so I'm thankful for the path I took, but I'm happy where I landed right now, and I'll be at CBS now until the end of my career. I'm going to probably retire in about five years, and. Um, and go fishing on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, and play golf on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. That's my plan. <laughs> yeah, I know how much you love golf. And I'm curious because, obviously, you love directing football and basketball. But what about other sports? I mean, I know you've done golf, and, and you know, I wonder how hard is it to direct golf? And since you play it, uh, you know, does that give you a different perspective? I definitely think it does. As a matter of fact, I would say that of all the sports I've ever directed, um, I think that golf, my, my knowledge of golf has helped me more as a director than any other sport. Uh, and I played all the sports in high school and, you know, football, basketball, baseball, I, I played them. But I certainly understand golf 
better than than um, uh, most people who you know who who do golf. And um, because I am a golfer, and I really enjoy uh, I really enjoy that aspect of it. It's a very tough sport to cover, and I'm lucky, Joe, in that the only golf I really cover is the Masters, right? So I get to do the biggest golf event of the year every mm-hmm. year. I'm one of the one of the directors there. We have. We have about six directors there, and I'm one of them. And we're all doing our, you know, besides that, we don't direct the main show that you see on CBS, or, um, um, but I direct the, the, the specialized coverage. Like I might just cover Amen Corner, or I might cover 1516, or I might do a feature group. And in that little, in that little cubby hole is my, that's my, that's my fill of golf for the entire season is doing that, and I really, really enjoy it. And certainly being at Augusta, being at the Masters is a lot of fun, too, doing the biggest event of the year. So um, that's, that's a lot of fun, and I, I look forward to going every single year. So, Mark, you have the distinction of being the first African-American director at CBS and ESPN, and also last season, this was a real treat, because not only have I worked with Mark before, but Kamani Morales, I, I worked with him when he was just a young broadcast associate. Well, he was a producer. You were the director on a Chargers-Broncos game where you were the, fr- you were the first ever NFL telecast with both an African-American producer and director. How much pride do you take in that? And even Kamani, did you guys talk about that? Yeah, you know, there's a side of me that is very, very proud of that moment. Okay, I was very honored to be a part of it, um, uh, and I and I and I thank CBS for giving me the opportunity. On the other side, though, you know, the NFL has been around for a long time, <laughs> and TV yeah. in the NFL has been around for a long time. And there's a part of me that just that that said, "What the hell took so long?" Exactly. Right? What the hell took so long? And and um, uh, you know, I don't. I'm not laying blame anywhere or anything like that because it's it's very hard to get to the level of producer-director, but we've had a, a, across all networks, you know, there have been producers, there haven't been a lot of black directors, and, um, and I don't really know why, Joe. I'm not, I'm not sure why. It's a, it's, you know, it's a very hard uh, job. A lot, of people, a lot of people are very comfortable at whatever le- level they are before being a director, whether a camera person or an audio person, a person doing replays or a technical director, whatever it is, they may be happy at that position and not willing to take the leap that it takes to become a director, because sometimes once you take that leap, if you fail, you can't go back to doing what you were doing. They've already replaced you. Yeah. You've got to go back to the back of the line. And so for that reason, I think a lot of people don't get the opportunity. And then, of course, I do believe that there's some racism involved as well, and I think that people just don't give people the chance for whatever reason. Um, I'm very thankful that I've, I've, I was blessed to have a little talent, and people recognize the talent, and I got the chance. But I know there have been many people who who are mid-level, they may be directing small-time, you know, regional cable, SEC network, you know, Big Ten network, you know, things that aren't as big as, see, that, that deserve a chance. They just haven't gotten that chance for whatever reason now. And I just hope that um, what I do, that my body of work speaks loudly enough to say, hey, you know, if Mark Grant can do it, we, you know, he's, look at what Mark Grant did. Let's give somebody else a chance like somebody gave Mark Grant a chance. And that's what I that's what I hope, and so uh, I spend a lot of time mentoring to those young people who want to become directors and tell them not to give up and to stay on the path, and then I try to make sure that the, the companies I work for, in this case CBS, understand that we can't keep going in the way, it, it, it's, it's been, you know, I, I came there in 1998, and I was the first black director, and now it's 2021, and there still hasn't been another person promoted to director, okay? Yeah. Now, there, there's a lot of reasons why that's happening, and I'm not, you know, I'm not here to blame CBS, 
But at some point, we have to look and say, hey, there's, there's, there's some quality people out there that deserve an opportunity, and give them the shot. And if they don't make it, okay, then, that, then they don't make it. But you just never know unless you give somebody a shot. And I believe that with people, with, with the, the world we live in today, um, diversity is so in, important. Inclusion is so important. Equity is so important. And, and if you give somebody the opportunity, there's going to be a lot of people there trying to support that person to say, we want you to make it for a lot of reasons, not just because you know, you're good at what you do, but we want to show the world that we believe in DE&I and that, and that um, you know, we're a company that's on the cutting edge of that and we're trying to really make a difference. And so I hope that more people get the opportunities like Kamani, like me, that get those opportunities and, they, and it, it just becomes, we're not talking about this anymore, right? I'm tired of talking about, uh, as, as much, like I said, as, I'm very grateful to be the first black producer-director combination of me and Kamani last year, but I hope there's a point that comes soon that they don't have to talk about it anymore. We're just another producer-director doing a game. Right. Instead of having to worry about that, uh, you know, how, how many chances are, are we giving somebody? I mean, it should just be commonplace. Right. Uh, and you were, you were the driving force behind the 846 campaign, you know, eight minutes and 46 seconds that CBS Sports had in the wake of the George Floyd murder. And uh, it featured personal stories from CBS Sports, black voices, over eight minutes, 46 seconds. This, and they were discussing experiences on being black in America. What did that mean to you to be a part of that? Well, uh, I, was, I was really happy that CBS gave us an opportunity. They, they, they asked everybody, you know, when we, when, when we stopped doing sports last year, and, and, you know, sports went dark for a long time. And when sports finally came back, you know, CBS wanted to make a profound statement as to what, how the, the, the death of George Floyd impacted our company and, 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 and what, it, what it meant to us as a, as a company to, uh, to take a stand against racism, you know, and, and um, um, and, I, and I think they did a beautiful job. And they asked, they asked all, a lot of us across the board for ideas on how, you know, what can we do. And um, I, I came up with the idea about the 846, and I'm not saying it to brag about me doing it, because I just, I just think it was a, you know, I'm glad, grateful they did it, and I'm grateful for, for the way it came across. And I just thought it gave a chance for a lot of different people to say, you know, have their take on racism and, and, and um and and we got a lot of different people. We didn't just have all the black announcers, you know, be a part of it. We had, you know, Amanda Balionis and Amy Trask, and and a lot of different people were telling their story. You know, uh, 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 Bill Cower, and 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 then of course there were some African American faces who told their story as well about what they've been through and the journey they've been through. And I think when you blended it all together for that 846, and then and then, you know, of course James Brown wrapped it up at the end. You know, the 846 represented the amount of time that. Uh, uh, Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck. I just thought it was a beautiful way to kind of uh, to, to tell the story about um, about to, 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 to tell the story about what it means to us as people and and how this George Floyd thing in, in, impacted so many people. And and they told their story. And and, and I, you know I interviewed I interviewed Amy Trask and Amanda Balionis for it. And they talked about what it was like and what it meant to them. And I just thought it was a, a great place. To speak out in public and for the world to see that this, you know, this George Floyd thing was just, you know, it, it, it as 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 much as it impacted the world, it, people saw it. But we as CBS Sports, it impacted us as well. And I thought that we did a good job, CBS did, of telling the story of how it impacted us. 
I mean, that's just great that you did that. Uh, and I wonder, Mark, uh, what was your take on Colin Kaepernick, uh, you know, first of all, when he started kneeling and, and taking a stand? And I don't know if you've seen the Netflix series. I mean, I, I watched the uh, first season of it. I, I think that's all that's come out so far. Colin in black and white, which I thought was really well done. I mean, I always admired Kaepernick for what he was going through and ends up pretty much giving up his career because of it. Uh, what was your take on all of it? Yeah, you know, um, I, I thought it was I thought it was very profound what he did. It took a lot of guts to do what he did, and he knew that it was going to it was going to it was going to make a lot of people mad. And yeah. I, I I think he knew that it, his 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 career was at stake over it, you know. And um, but he took a stand, and and I really believe that Colin Kaepernick taking a knee changed America. The, the outlook on America, racism and, and, and uh, systemic racism in America, I think that him taking a knee did that. Now, it did it for a lot of reasons. Number one, a lot of people got mad about it, okay? A lot, many, many people got mad. Owners of teams got mad about it. You know, I mean, it was, it was, it was just, it was, it was crazy. It divided locker rooms. It, you know, it was a lot of things that, that, that did. But it brought the, the um, injustice to light in a way that, that, that it, could, it could never have been done before. And so, you know, where, what a better place for you to make a complaint about uh, systemic racism than over the national anthem. Um, there was no other place where Colin Kaepernick would have gotten the attention that he did. If he did it during a, during a, on his, let's say he did it on his, uh, on his uh, Instagram page or he did it on his Facebook page, or, you know, not, it, did, it doesn't get the attention as right, it did. Right, right. And then when other people started taking a knee as well, okay, and it, then it really became like a, a lot of momentum and a lot of, you know, it, it was like, okay, I think that people had to say, uh, you know what, they can't all be wrong for taking a knee. Why, so why are they taking a knee? Let's examine why they're taking a knee. And then that made, made for good discussion. And we didn't always agree on the discussion, but at least we had a discussion, right? And so um, I, I, will, I think he will go down as one of the most – you know, Kirk Flood was one of the great, you know, great, uh, you know, change baseball as we know it because of free agency, you know, when, when, when he did what he did. And I think Colin Kaepernick, when it's all said and done, will go down as one of the most uh, influential people in the history of the NFL, not just for the NFL, but for, for, for what he did for racism across America. Wow, I mean, that's really well said. And, you know, when I was watching the series with Kaepernick, uh, and by the way, I thought the acting was really good with, with the kid who plays Kaepernick uh, as a teenager. It made me think back uh, in the late 80s when I was working with you. Uh, you, you know, I was a young, uh, naive guy working in TV, and you told me about some incidents that you experienced in your hometown of Baton Rouge, you know, be, as being a black person. I just never heard anything like that before. It, it was jaw dropping to me. Uh, and no, and I think that, you know, a lot of white people have no idea, you know, what it's like to grow up being black. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. And I think that, um, uh, it's hard for everybody. It's hard to be black in the South. There's, there's, there's no question about that. It's, it's very hard because a lot of times people, you know, like Martin Luther King says, they judge you by the con- they don't judge you by the content of your character; they just judge you by the color of your skin. And and many times, Joe, you know, I've, people have judged me just because I'm black, and they don't know anything about me. And um, uh, I, I've you know I've been I've been called the N word. I've you know I've, I've I've been on the phone with people talking to them, and they don't know I'm black, and they told me and they've said jokes, you oh know, using gosh. the N word. 
um, I interviewed for a job at a, at a university, and the, the, the person that was, was talking to me on the phone told a joke, used the N-word. I still flew up there for the interview, and I got in his face. I said, remember you told me that joke? I will never take a job working for you, and I left. Wow. Um, and so uh, it's, it's hard. But I also think that um, we can overcome it. Uh, I think it takes two things. I think you've got to have economic power and you have to have education. And sometimes those go hand in hand. You know, um, Down here in the South, sometimes society is built to keep the oppressed oppressed. And if you can't get out of that, if you can't send your children to the, a better school, if you can't, uh, you know, uh, if you decide, if you can't live where you want to live and, and, and live the life you want to live because you don't have the, 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 the education or the economic power, then you're always going to be oppressed. And so I'm fortunate that I, you know, I, I, I live where I want to live and, and, and um, I send my kids to a private school and get the best education so that benefits them. And hopefully their kids will do this. You know, they'll send their kids to private school and it benefits them and the, and, the, and the cycle continues. But if you don't have that economic power or you don't have the education, then you're really, really, you're really suspect to the, to the racism and the, and the oppression that is, that is put upon you because they, people, society gives up on you. And, um, and I, didn't, I don't want society to give up on me, and I want to make a difference. And, and so, you know, a lot of times when I'm on the plane, I'll sit next to somebody that I could tell right away that, you know, he, has, he doesn't want to have anything to do with me. I'm, I'm a black guy sitting next to him. And, and all of a sudden I pull out my NFL stuff or my CBS <laughs> stuff and, or something like that. And all of a sudden the whole conversation shifts, okay? And, and I get really angry about that, okay? And I sometimes, I, most of the time I don't give that person the time of day. I, want, I, I just really kind of play the, I tease them. And, yeah. Uh, you know, they, they want to know if I'm a coach or if I'm a referee or, you know, whatever, whatever. I'll say no, yes and no answers. For, and I'll put my headset on and I'm done with them. And so, right. um, but it's a shame that, that that same person who didn't want to even get up and move, let me get out, you know, let me get in my seat now wants to know everything about me and who I know and if I met Peyton Manning and you know, blah, 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 blah. Now I'm somebody. Only because of, you know. Yeah. Now it's, you know, because now I, I cover sports for a living or I'm a referee or a coach or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, you, you hate to, you know, all of a sudden uh, somebody changes their attitude. So before I let you go, Mark, uh, you had mentioned being an LSU grad, and recently you were inducted into the LSU Hall of Distinction. What kind of an honor was that? It was, uh, it, it was it's a tremendous honor. Um, you know, I, I think about, uh, when I, first when I got the call, and on my caller ID, the, the, um, the caller ID number came up as um, the LSU Alumni Association. And so I'm thinking they're, you know, they're calling to ask me for more money or something. You know, we're we're <laughs> right. going to fire a football coach. We need money to buy him out or whatever, whatever, whatever. And uh, um, so I, I, so when I answered the phone, I, I, I just kind of played it like that. And then they said to me, no, we're not looking for money. We, we just want to let you know you've been selected to be in the LSU Hall of Distinction. Um, it, 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 it was, it was, it hit me, you know, it hit me pretty hard. I was really surprised. And then I started doing some research as to who else is in the LSU Hall of Distinction, okay? Mm-hmm. And there are certainly a lot of people, especially people of color, in the Hall of Distinction, but most, almost all of them, especially men, black males, they all played sports at LSU, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and so I was the first one, the first male person of color to get in the Hall of Distinction only because of what I, my body of work, not related to sports. Not, not doing, not, I, I didn't earn a varsity letter. At athlete, I didn't play sports right. at LSU. I was an athlete, okay? And so then it really kind of, you know, I mean, look, they, 
there's 250,000 LSU graduates around the country, and every year they pick six of them to be in the Hall of Distinction, and um, they chose me. That's they awesome. chose me, yeah. and so I was pretty excited about it, um, and 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 really, it, it just it floors me. It, it really does when I think about it, and uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity, and and it will be something that that I I you know I, I I've won five Emmy awards, um, but. Being in the Hall of Distinction of, a, of, of LSU is something. The, the Emmy Awards, we win as a team a lot of times. You know, it's like your coverage of NFL. Everybody who's on the NFL wins an Emmy Award. But to be in the Hall of Distinction, it is about you and what you've done and your body of work. Certainly, it's people have helped me get there. I mean, I'm thankful for all the people who've, um, you know, made me have a good body of work. But they looked at me and said, that's our guy. That's We're going to pick Mark Grant to be in the Hall of Distinction, and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, it's special, and it's well-deserved, Mark. And uh, by the way, what a week this has been for both of our alma maters because <laughs> Lincoln Riley goes to USC, my alma mater. Just shocking that he leaves Oklahoma. And Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame, a team that you know could be on its way to the college football playoff to become the head coach at your school, LSU, for a huge contract. How did yeah. that hit you? Well, first of all, let's talk about Lincoln Riley and, 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 and USC. I think that he put up a huge smoke screen, right, because nobody really talked about him going to USC. Everything was about him coming to LSU, coming to LSU, coming to LSU. <laughs> and he kept saying, I'm not going to be the next coach of LSU, but all along he was, you know, working the scheme in a different direction. And I think, Joe, that, you know, there are a lot of people at Oklahoma who may be a little bit upset with Lincoln Riley for what he did, but really, didn't Oklahoma do the same thing to the Big 12 when they left the Big 12 to go to LSU? They did it under a smoke screen. Nobody knew that it was coming. All of a sudden, wham, it's like, mm. we're out of here. Yeah. And, and so, you know, what Oklahoma did to the Big 12, then Lincoln Riley did to Oklahoma. That's what I would say. As far as, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, Kelly coming to LSU from Notre Dame, I think it's a major win for LSU. I thought they were, you know, everybody thought that when – when um, when Riley signed with Notre Dame, they were gonna they were in a, in, in deep trouble. But you know they had uh, to Scott uh, Woodard's um, credit, the athletic director, he had a plan and he was kind of keeping it very very low key. And so while everybody was thinking that Lincoln Riley was the guy, he was really going after Brian Kelly. And I think it says a lot about uh, about LSU that you can that that you can get the coach who's leaving one of the most storied programs in college football history on the verge of making the college football playoff this year to pack his bag and say, I'm coming to LSU. Now, granted, you had to give him a lot of money. Okay, I understand that. And whoever came to LSU was going to get a lot of money. But, you know, I'm not sure if I would leave Notre Dame and all that program stands for and all that. I mean, it, I mean I'm sure he could have. And he didn't even ask to negotiate or renegotiate with Notre Dame. He just said, I'm out. I'm sure Notre Dame would have said, okay, we'll make you the highest paid coach, blah, blah, blah. They got the resources. But he saw something in coming to Baton Rouge and LSU that I think really, really attracted him. And, you know, certainly LSU is a big school in the state. You don't have to compete against other um, other uh, uh, programs and all that, other universities. You know, you get all the blue chippers from, from uh, Louisiana. But there was something about this that attracted him. And so I'm just going to – now, I hope that he's successful because if he's not successful – the LSU alumni associate may be calling me asking for more money to buy him out because uh, because uh, you know that's a ten year deal and if he's if he's blowing it after you know year two or three you know you got seven years left on a on a ninety five million dollar contract you got a lot of payout a lot of payout and it's you know we we gave Ed Ogeron seventeen million to leave 
you know, if, if uh, Brian Kelly's a flop early in his career, we got, you know, <laughs> we might have seven or eight or nine years of, of, uh, of, uh, Nine and a half million dollars a year to pay off. So I'm ho- I really hope he's successful. <laughs> well, we'll see you in the national championship game in a couple of years. Uh, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. But you know, Joe, the last three coaches at LSU have all won a national championship. So there is that. Ooh. There is a pattern there. All right, there is that. I'll yeah. be seeing you in Houston for the Colts and the Texans this week, and then we got the big game for me, my, my 49ers and the Bengals, which we get to cover. I'm really excited about that. And, you know, we fly all over the country, and I didn't realize until talking to you before the podcast that you are a 4 million mile flyer. That is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I, that's just on Delta. You know, if you add up all the other miles I've flown on all the other airlines, it's probably another million miles, but... Um, you know, one of the reasons why is because I it's because of where I choose to live. I live in Baton Rouge, and there's very few direct flights. So almost every time I go to work, every time I go do a game, I have to fly to Atlanta and then fly somewhere else. Even if I'm flying to the West Coast, I fly to Atlanta first, and then fly Atlanta to San Francisco, Atlanta to L.A., Atlanta to Phoenix, or whatever. And uh, you know, those miles start to add up after a while. And and so. Um, uh, when I first made my first million miles, I was very, very proud of that. It was a big badge of honor, and I'm a million miler. <laughs> but then the more million miles you make, it's like it's almost like the walk of shame now when you make it. Uh, uh, you know, you just you just saying to yourself, God, is this ever going to end? And so my goal, I hope, is that I don't. I I'll probably I'm probably going to make a become a five million miler, but I'm not going to become a six million miler on Delta. And so. Um, uh, I'll accept the fact that I'm going to do the five million mile thing, but I will not be a six million miler, and that's my promise to myself. All right, I hope not, Mark. Thank you so much for the time. This was really, really fun to talk to you. Uh, very entertaining, and uh, can't wait to uh, see you again this week for our NFL game and uh, the rest of the season. Joe, I, thanks. I appreciate. it. I just want to tell everybody who's listening that that I, I, you know. We do different things, and we don't really interact during the game and all that. But I, I see your graphic, I see your stats, I see your, you know, the the work that you do every single game, and you really, really make our telecast great by the stuff that you do. And and I would just want everybody to know that you're an excellent statistician, and you do a great, great job, and you really make our announcers and our graphics department look good. And so just keep up the good work. And uh, it's all, and I, I, you know, we've worked together for a long time, but it's always great to know that you're on the team. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it's fun. I've been doing it a long time, and I enjoy it. Every week is a challenge. Uh, so, Mark, good luck with everything, and, uh, you know, have a great rest of the season. And, uh, you know, again, like I said, look forward to these upcoming games that are going to be great. All right, Joe. I'll see you Saturday. Thanks. That's CBS Sports Director Mark Grant. Thanks a lot for listening this week. Next week, we're going to have another CBS Sports colleague of mine, former NFL quarterback and current CBS analyst Trent Green, who is going to be on the 49ers-Seahawks game this coming weekend. So I am really looking forward to hearing what Trent Green has to say about the Niners. For now, I'm Joe Castellano. Thanks for listening on the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.